Hello and welcome to another episode of Stream Wars, our thought leader series, where we learn from industry experts about the latest trends and challenges from across the convergent TV space. Hosted by Michael Beach. Today I'm joined by Alex Weprin. Alex is currently a media and business reporter for The Hollywood Reporter. He also edits their daily newsletter, which I highly recommend. I've known Alex for several years, back to his days at Media Post and Political, and I've always been impressed by his range. He is knowledgeable about everything going on in New York and Hollywood, but also connects the dots to our backyard local. Please enjoy my conversation with Alex Weprin. Alex, welcome to Screen Wars. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, I know our audience uh, is familiar with Hollywood Reporter, but I uh, kind of want to give us a quick overview of kind of how, how you got where you are today. Yeah, sure. So look, I joined The Hollywood Reporter uh, as their newsletter editor a couple of years ago, uh, but I've been writing about the TV business and streaming for uh, over a decade. I started out at a trade publication called Broadcasting and Cable, where I kind of covered the early days of YouTube and uh, Netflix when they kind of made the switch from DVDs to streaming. Um, and along the way, I've also worked at Politico and Media Post covering advertising. So, you know, uh, I've been following the uh, the entertainment space closely for a long time and the streaming world for a long time. Uh, and it's just uh, it's amazing how uh, how much it changes, uh, even as you see a lot of the same players uh, leading the space. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we're, we're kind of heading to earnings season, uh, which is a exciting time of the year here. Kind of what's your overall thesis on you know, the streaming industry today, obviously, there's been a ton of news. We're going to kind of jump into Netflix uh, ad offering more specifically later. But kind of what's your overall thesis and kind of what do you see the biggest challenges? So, you know, after Netflix kind of reported after last quarter, their decline in subscribers, I wrote that they were kind of facing what I refer to as a stress test. And I referenced, you know, some of the uh, the big banks, how they're kind of forced to kind of undergo stress tests to kind of test um, how they would hold up under, you know, a recessionary scenario. And, um, what Netflix is facing is actually kind of similar. Uh, it kind of caught them by surprise by their own admission. And I think the rest of the industry, every other streaming service, every other company that's investing in streaming is looking at what's happening to Netflix and kind of seeing how it plays out because there's an expectation that, um, whatever happens to them is likely to happen to everyone else eventually once they catch up. Um, but at the same time, I think they're also looking at Netflix, which is the market leader, over 200 million subscribers, and thinking, what can we do differently to hopefully avoid that fate? Um, and I will say that, you know, talking to various folks in streaming today, a couple of the most common themes that I hear are one, their right to be in advertising. So I think people are, uh, they're, they're kind of embracing the role of advertising and streaming video. And two, um, how can we handle uh, password sharing better? Because Netflix, basically since they began streaming, has been pretty lax about password sharing. And now they're finally say they're going to crack down. And I think everyone else is saying, well, maybe if we crack down early on, we can kind of avoid this fate where Netflix now says they have something like as many as 40% of users share passwords. That's a huge amount number of people, you know, that could, that, that number in the United States could basically be the top for, you know, the potential number of subscribers. So um, I think everyone is kind of looking at those two things and, and saying, how can we adjust our business models 
to um, uh, to react and hopefully avoid the same fate. Well, yeah, I know, you know, you and I have talked and we're obviously you know, tremendously bullish on kind of ad supported video and um, the shift to streaming advertising we see is uh, eventually we'll have a ton of upside, right? The ability to generate more revenue. I kind of always felt like, especially looking at Hulu as a proxy that, of course, these guys were going to move to to ad support at some point because they just the revenue per user. You just can't you, you almost can't raise your prices that fast to do a subscription offering. Is that kind of correct in your view or what's your take? Oh, totally. Like if you look at Hulu's, you know, um, ARPU, the average revenue per user, you know, it's 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 really good. I think it's, it was over it was like around thirteen dollars per subscriber. So, you know, it's, it, and that's, and you got to consider that most of Hulu's subscribers are in the ad supported tier. So, you know, you can say that Disney or Hulu is probably getting in the ballpark of six to $7 per subscriber per month in advertising, which is huge. And it's still pretty nascent. So there's a lot of room to grow there with better targeting as bigger advertisers that maybe aren't really investing in streaming kind of make a push into the space. And so, you know, that's a, probably a big part of why Disney is also bringing advertising to Disney Plus, um, although they're not going to be quite as aggressive about ads as Hulu is, at least not at the beginning. And of course, that's why Netflix is interested in it as well. There's a good chance that, you know, Netflix could launch. So Netflix's basic tier is $10 a month, right? That's bare bones. The tier that most people subscribe to is $12 where you get a couple streams in HD. But the base tier is $10 per month here in the US. You could see a $5 per month tier and Netflix could end up with more revenue per user than they do from their $10 per month to year without ads, just because, you know, they'll be able to more efficiently monetize it. So um, that's just such a critical thing. And Hulu is probably the best proxy because Disney, to their credit, is uh, is public and granular with how that revenue shakes out. Yeah, what do you think? I know uh, Wall Street Journal this week kind of put out a rumor that uh, you know, Netflix was looking to partner with companies like they mentioned uh, Comcast, the kind of the free roll unit and uh, NBC universal, and then uh, Google. What do you think? You think that's going to happen or is Netflix going to kind of launch with their own tech well, and leadership? We've heard that Netflix is talking to Comcast, NBC universal, Google, the trade desk, Roku. My interpretation of the state of things is that, they are talking to every major player in the space and trying to game out what each is willing to offer, right? So I think each company could bring something to the equation. And I think once they have a sense of what is out there, they can you know, take stock of it and decide who they want to partner with, or maybe they'll even partner with a couple of them um, and, uh, and, and build out an ad, you know, some sort of ad tier pretty quickly. It does seem like... So they've said publicly that they want to launch it sooner rather than later. And there's been reporting that it's by the end of the year, which makes sense. And in order to do that, they would need a third party to really kind of take the lead on the tech side and possibly the sales side to make that happen. Um, that would certainly lean, you know, make me lean towards Roku or Comcast NBCU. Um, but, you know, uh, you could see them partner with multiple parties. Um, I, I think in the next few weeks, possibly the next month or two, um, we're going to see the first deals get signed. But I think right at this very moment, they're talking to all the major players and just seeing what each can bring. And uh, once they get that, then they can move to the next phase and actually strike deals. Excellent. Well, looking at Netflix as a whole, 
uh, you come off last quarter, what's what's your your bull case for Netflix and what's a bear case? I mean, the bull case for Netflix is the same one that their executives make, which is true, which is that ultimately all video is moving to streaming. You know, at some point, um, everything, all entertainment, all sports, all news is going to be consumed via streaming video. Um, now, when that happens is, a you know, still very much up for debate, but that is the long game. And so they will argue that, you know, they only have 200 million subscribers and that the, the ceiling should be over a billion or it means, you know, maybe five or 600 million, whatever it may be like that, you know, it's going to be much higher than it is now. And because they are the biggest and the best, they have the widest breadth of content. They're the ones who are going to lead the way. The bear case is that they have kind of cornered themselves in terms of a business model, this premium subscription model that, has worked tremendously well in markets like the U.S. and Canada and Western Europe, but has hinders their ability to grow in maybe emerging markets like India. Um, Reed Hastings uh, noted on, I forget whether it was an earnings call or at an investor conference, but he, he noted that um, in India, the equivalent of like our cable TV bundle, where here you know we may pay $70 a month for a typical cable bundle, in India, it's something like 3 or $4 a month for like the same product. And so in India, Netflix is a premium product because they're actually priced higher than a cable bundle. And it's a different product. So it, it, it became like a luxury there. And so if you're going to compete in some of these markets, which have a lot of growth ahead of them, um, you kind of have to f- figure out pricing and, uh, what, you know, and figure out what the local um, audience really wants. So it's, it's been a challenge for them there. So the bear case is that they're kind of cornered in and that they are kind of unable to break, you know, they've kind of hit a ceiling in the U.S. and Canada and Western Europe, and they're really unable to break through in these emerging markets and other players, whether legacy companies like Disney, which are willing to underprice in those markets, um, or new players um, that come, you know, that kind of enter the field um, uh, are able to do so. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um kind of the earnings, I mean, especially the expectation they set of uh, impossible, you know, loss of, I think, 2 million subscribers over the next 12 months. Uh, you know, what this, I don't kind of recall them having two rough earnings reports in a row in at least recent memory. No, I mean, but look, they lost 200,000 subscribers last quarter, and that was the first time they had lost subscribers in over a decade. So, you know, it would be, they're, they're for, they were forecasting another loss, um, but you know they've always been pretty conservative. In fact, the last Netflix has historically been pretty conservative with their forecasts. Um, that's just always how they've operated, and so they've had a few big misses over the past couple of years. And I think you can pretty reasonably say that the pandemic had a role in that because it made it difficult to really game out what consumers were looking for. Um, and so you know. They're forecasting a pretty significant loss. So if they don't, you know, if it if it's better than forecast, maybe that would could work in their favor for their share price. Um, but it's also possible that they have a worse quarter than anticipated. They did see Stranger Things debut, the new season, which is a kind of their biggest franchise, really, um, at least until the second season of Squid Game comes around. Um, and so that's something that should help them which is why some people were surprised that they kind of had the lower forecast, but you know, we'll have to wait and see. 
All right. Well, switching gears to uh, re regional sports networks, um, you recently wrote about the Nesson 360 launch, which, especially in our world, kind of the local space, uh, is a pretty big deal. Um, one kind of takeaway I've had is, and again, I'm not surprised, but it, the consumer, I think, has got a little bit of sticker shock um, about what these services cost direct outside the bundle. I guess, one, what are your thoughts on that? And then, two, I kind of look at this. Do you think that these direct consumer RSNs are a threat to the the bundle or are they just trying to sign up people who've already cut the cord? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think consumers have become so accustomed to streaming services that cost $15 or under and have a ton of content that um, when you see Nesson or the Sinclair, the Bally RSNs um, priced $20 and above, there is that sense of sticker shock. Um, so I do think that's an issue and there's going to have to be a lot more work to educate consumers and make them realize, actually, this is like, there's a reason that we're charging this or, or adding more to the product to help justify that higher price. Um, you know, Sinclair has talked in the past about trying to find a way to incorporate betting or gaming into such a product. Um, and that would be one way to kind of really engage sports fans, you know, directly. In fact, Disney, Bob Chapek, um, at an investor conference said that, you know, they've been thinking about a direct consumer ESPN, not that it's imminent, but that whenever it happens, whether it's five years from now, 10 years from now, whatever, it would have to be the kind of the place to go for any sports fan. And so, you know, the future of sports, like all, like all content is in streaming um, but the business model remains kind of up in the air. And the RSNs, this is like a first tiptoe in that direction. Uh, I do think that, you know, uh, for now, I suspect that it's really about trying to reach people that have cut the cord but are still big sports fans. And, you know, the truth is, like, if you're a baseball fan, you may just subscribe for June, July, August, September, and then cancel you know, for the rest of the year until the next season picks up again. So, uh, you know, that's, that may be how things shake out. Uh, and that could help, you know, alleviate the, the sticker shock to some extent. Yeah. I mean, you know, for us kind of, you know, rough math is we wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, you have about 10 to 15% of people watch their RSN on a given month. And there's about 60 million ish homes. I think that that have an RSN when you kind of take out the, uh, virtual providers and the satellite companies that don't carry them. You know, if you're getting five bucks a month from 60 million people, that's $300 million a month. And then to replicate $300 million a month, if you, the only people that would buy it are the 10 to 15% of the people that watch it, right? Like the rest of them are, so that price all of a sudden is gotta be 10 X, right? So if you're really, if you were going to replace the bundles revenue, it'd be even much higher than 30 bucks. There, and there are, you know, there are creative ways to do it. I actually think one thing that Nesson did that I thought was very clever is if you bought their like premium annual pass, they would throw in eight Red Sox tickets as part of it. And I, that was clever because the truth is those eight Red Sox tickets probably, you know, I'm sure they were not great tickets, <laughs> but they probably cost about what the annual, you know, subscription cost was. Um, but because Nesson was owned by the same you know, organization as the Red Sox, they could do that. And that's the sort of bundle that may be required, at least at the start, 
to convince people to buy in where, you know, discounted tickets, you know, real meaningful engagement with sports fans, you know, zooms with players, like, you know, there, there are all these other things that maybe could be brought into such a product to kind of add value to it and make people think, okay, well, do I really want to pay for this? I don't know. Maybe a couple of tickets and a, you know, get to ask questions of my favorite player, whatever it is. That's the sort of thing that I think they have to be thinking about. Absolutely. Well, same question. You know, what's your bull case and bear case for the uh, the regional sports networks? I mean, my bull case isn't as bullish as my bull case on Netflix. Um, Just because, as you say, like, you know, it's a relatively small chunk of the population. Um, So it's really hard to see how it becomes great economics without some sort of like betting side, you know, part of it. Um, uh, And those rights and and, working with the leagues and that is really complicated. So the bear case is a lot stronger for me, at least, just because, you know, they're going to struggle. I think the signups will be in the thousands, not the millions. Um, uh, But, you know, in the long term, I do think there's, you know, if everything goes to streaming, you could find a way to bundle it with other stuff, whether it's tickets or, you know, betting or, you know, interactive things or other types of content um, that perhaps could kind of keep it going. Yeah, I'm interesting. What's the the risk threshold of getting removed from the basic tier on any of those providers? I mean, it doesn't look like it's going to happen yet, but that's, I'm sure, in their calculus for pricing and everything else. They just need to keep as much of that 60 plus million subscribers coming in on a monthly basis. Yeah, I mean, I think that every cable provider or satellite provider as well is um, is carefully looking at what every single channel is doing. So that includes the RSNs, but it also includes TBS and TNT and CNN and Fox News, everything. And I think, you know, what, you know, for basically since the invention of cable, the carriage fees have only gone up. I think we're going to enter a period where they go down as, you know, because there's no just, you know, there's no reason for MTV to be getting um, whatever it's getting right now. And I don't have those numbers in front of me, but. Um, you know, they've gone up steadily for decades and MTV today is not the MTV it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. There's far less content on there and pretty much everything that is there is also available on Paramount Plus. And you could say the same thing for a lot of other channels as well. Um, and, you know, so I think that you know, the only only a handful of channels would, will be able to justify rate increases. And that, that's probably the big sports networks like ESPN big news channels like CNN and Fox news. Um, you know, RSNs, uh, they're so niche that while they might be able to generate rate increases, uh, I think there's going to be pushback for making them included in kind of a base level of the service. And there's going to be pressure to kind of make, put them at a premium tier. Um, and maybe the, you know, or maybe a rev share with the, with the, the cable or satellite provider, to kind of encourage them to push it on consumers. Well, switching gears one last time here. Uh, you know, one of my favorite uh, kind of even year themes is the bullish statements from earnings season for TV companies that can sell political ads. And you wrote a great story uh, with plenty of this recently. Uh, kind of what's, I guess, how important is political advertising to local media companies? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, political advertising, certainly for local television is kind of, you know, 
it's become a li- the lifeblood. You know, it, it, every time that you know, in, in a midterm election year, in a presidential election year, we've be, been seeing these enormous jumps um, in terms of in terms of uh, you know political ad sales from campaigns, from from PACs, from third party groups, and it's just been crazy. And as the the electoral map has kind of expanded, and a lot more states have become competitive. Um, and, and, and as, you know, Democrats or Republicans have been trying to like reach into other states with like Democrats spending aggressively in Texas and Republicans spending in the, the Midwest, uh, places that maybe in the past they hadn't spent a lot of money. Um, it's kind of shaken up the local media in a, in a really crazy way over the last few years. Um, uh, so it's been kind of amazing to follow. And as I wrote, you know, uh, thanks to data from, from you, you know, the, the 2022 is going to be a, a, another crazy year, um, another record breaking year. Um, and it, it makes kind of makes me wonder what 2024 is going to bring because one can't imagine it being bigger than 2020, but at this point, who knows? Yeah. I mean, the, the thing it's, you know, I always wonder, and we, you know, talked to a lot of the, especially the local broadcasters, is obviously they've got to make the transition to digital at some point, whether both like they've got to get their people to watch local news through digital and they've got to get the, you know, more of the revenue to come from digital, but it's like these political, you know, tsunamis come in and they kind of, I think, relieve the pressure that mm. other, other verticals can't like, they've got to figure this out, you know, uh, you know, faster. And I always wonder if they're, if this is kind of delaying their growth, into those new areas. Uh, Cause I think one thing about our report, I mean, you know, just connected TV alone, the cycle will be larger than all cable TV advertising. That's not to mention social and mobile desktop video, which is both huge. And I think that, that, that trend is really accelerating. I, you know, I, I think you might be right with some of these companies. Like, I think it depends on the company. It depends on the leadership. The anal- the best analogy is actually in cable probably um, where you have like ESPN and I mentioned TBS and TNT before, you know, Bob Chapek at Disney and Jason Kyler at, at Warner Media before he was, you know, unceremoniously fired with that merger. They had both said publicly that um, those legacy cable channels are basically helping to fund the digital transition. They bring in so much cash, billions of dollars in cash, that they're taking it and they are using it to invest in streaming. And I think, you know, if you, if I was um, the leader of a local media company, a local television giant, I'd be approaching political the same way. You get this enormous influx of cash and really it should be used to invest in the next generation of local media, whatever it may be, you know, whatever it may be. And again, it will probably be streaming. It'll be digital. Um, But really it shouldn't just be, you know, uh, a cash grab that you can, you know, that you can just keep doing what you're doing. It really should be something, you know, something that you take and use to invest in what's coming next. And uh, that's what a lot of the big cable companies are doing. And one would hope that local media is kind of following that strategy uh, and that they see that uh, things are changing. Excellent. We'll get you out here. One more question. Uh, if you could get your entire team to read one book, what would that book be? If I were to recommend one book, I would cite something that I, I read recently. Um, and it's a, a book called The Master Switch by um, uh, an attorney. Tim Wu, right? Wu. Who, yeah. he's, he's probably best known for coining the, the term net neutrality. Um, and 
you know, he he's working in the Biden White House right now on, on antitrust stuff, but his he does a great job of kind of um, exploring the history of communications and this kind of push and pull of consolidation and deconsolidation. And he comes with, you know, at it with a point of view, but um, he's actually, he's a very good writer and kind of writes in a clear way. And it's hard not to, to read the master switch and kind of see, you know, where we are in the cycle, in his hypothetical cycle right now, as we look, kind of look at, you know, both deconsolidation and consolidation of the internet and media and communications and, te- and, and technology. So if, if you're a nerd like me and you're really into um, media and tech and, and telecom, uh, it's the sort of thing that the, I, I felt like I, I learned a lot about the history of it, and it kind of made me think differently about how uh, how the business is being conducted today. Yeah, that's great. Great recommendation. Well, Alex, I've really enjoyed the conversation, and I'm sure our audience is going to love it. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Screen Wars. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. You can find out more about Cross Screen Media at crossscreenmedia.com. Please don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter, State of the Screens. You can find us on social media at Cross Screen Media. Join us next time for more insights and analysis straight from the experts.